students, welcome back to Homer's Alia 2019, Lecture 16, Book 9, The Embassy to Achilleus, and 10, The Dolinea, Part 1. Remember, the Achaeans have just lost a major battle. It is the first time they have lost a battle, and Agamemnon cannot sleep at night. Remember, what he cares about most, more than anything, even more than the victory itself, is what people say about him, his Cleos, what his fame, his reputation will be for all time. And if he loses this, War that he has been at for nine years, almost ten now, where he has ten times the troops of the Trojans, he will be a laughing stock for all time, and perhaps even with some other details you will learn, perhaps he sort of is. In any case, Agamemnon, along with Nestor, comes up with the idea to send three men to Achilleus. Three men who, with their persuasive abilities, will attempt to appeal to Achilleus, to appeal to his pity, to appeal to his love of glory, to appeal to his familial relationship slash uh, sort of love with those around him. Of course, Aias the Greater is his cousin. Um, and so these men go. And we recall that we got to Achilleus' tent yesterday. We were taken by two heralds, Odysseus and Euripides. And uh, Odysseus, though he saw a nod exchange between Aias and Phoenix, gave his speech. And we recall that he made several appeals. He made an appeal to the gifts and to the Geras of Agamemnon. It is the case that Agamemnon has offered tons of gifts to Achilleus, several tripods, uh, horses, women of Lesbos, his own daughter. He says he's going to treat Achilleus like a, uh, like a son himself, and so he's offering countless gifts. And yet, we recall that Achilleus was not exactly thrilled to hear that. For as I detest the doorways of death, I detest that man who hides one thing in the depths of his heart and speaks forth another. Does it sound? <laughs> does that sound like consent? Does that sound like Achilleus is saying, "Yes, I would love to accept these gifts and come back"? No, it sounds like quite the opposite. If if you say, "Mr. Schmidt, can I turn in this assignment late?" and I say, "For as I detest the doorways of death, so do I detest accepting late work." Does that sound like yes? Yeah. Yes. Mm, yeah, yeah. Ironically speaking, yes. But actually speaking, what? No, obviously no. Yes, very good. In any case, Achilleus responds, no one will uh, persuade me. You do not need to write the quote, but you do need to keep it inscribed upon your heart forever. And he says, listen, the thing is, I know my worth. I know my value. I have sacked 23 cities along the Troad, 12 by sea, 11 by, uh, by man, by infantry, by, uh, by foot. And so, I know that you really, really need me, and that the only reason you're here now is because you're doing very poorly. The problem with that, however, is the very nature of the crime committed against me, and the very nature of the crime that has brought us all to Troy. Recall, it was the taking of a woman, potentially by persuasion, potentially by force, that started this entire conflict. It was the taking of Helen a Spartan queen from Menelaus, a Spartan king, by a Trojan prince, Paris. Well, in Achilleus' eyes, the exact same crime has been committed against him. He is a man who then had his concubine, which is like a wife. Uh, she is a slave that fulfills the role of a wife at camp, in a way. He is a man who has had his lady, his Geras, taken from him by another man. And so, why should he fight for a man who's going to do or commit the same crime against him 
as the people he is supposed to be fighting for. To him, that makes no sense, and I think that that is a very strong argument. In fact, I really want to talk about that in seminar tomorrow. Perhaps we can parse terms and say that a concubine and a, and a, a wife are not the same thing, but they are fairly close in the ancient world. In fact, if you ever even read the Old Testament, you'll see that the wisest man in the Old Testament, Solomon, who supposedly the wisdom literature was written by, had 300 wives and 700 concubines. And so, this is not, uh, this is not an unknown thing in the ancient world. In any case, in any case, Achilles makes this claim, and he says, do only Atreus' sons love their wives? And very persuasive sort of thing. The only problem, I would say, with his reasoning is that the Trojans refused to give. Helen back. Whereas Agamemnon is clearly attempting to get Briseis back. And unlike in the Paris and Helen situation, without having shared conjugal bliss with her, which is very important, without laying together is what that means. In any case, he's also offered a lot more. So Achilles, I would say that even though it seems like he's being rational, He's far more driven by anger right now. He's being short-sighted. He's seen within um, uh, bracers, or what is it that you call the things you put around a, a blinder, excuse me, the things you put around a horse's head so that it only sees what's right in front of it. Achilles seems to be blind exactly to the entirety of the situation. He's focusing only on that which will make him angry. Perhaps you can think about when you get angry. Perhaps you think about things that will keep you angry and get upset when people try and say things that make you laugh. In any case, let's move on. Phoenix gives his speech. All right, I want you to know this situation. How is it that Phoenix came to be in this tent with Achilles? What is his relationship to Achilles, and how did he get to know Achilles? Well, Phoenix <laughs> was exiled from his home. He was the son of a man named Amentor. And so Amentor himself took a concubine, took a mistress. But Phoenix's mother did not like this one bit. And so she gave a bit of very terrible advice to her son. She said, why don't you lay with your father's concubine so that he then no longer likes her, dismisses her, and then returns to me? Perfect reasoning. Again, just like Achilles. What could go wrong with that? Well... The father could then find out that this had happened, and rather than getting angry at the concubine, he could get angry at his son, which he does. He could get so angry that he then desires to kill his son. And yes, that is a terrible situation to think that a father and a son would be competing for the same person, and yet that is the situation that's presented to us. Phoenix has to flee. His father will kill him if he stays at home. And that's a terrible situation for him because it's not like there's a Holiday Inn he can go to. It's not like he has a city with relatives in it. He has one city in which he has uh, any sort of presence or rank. So he has to go out into the wilderness. And, well, he comes upon another city eventually, Thea, and he's taken in. He's taken in. This is, uh, this, he's thrown a lifeline, essentially. This means that not only is he going to continue to live, but he will be given a life. And who is he given a life by? Well... He's given a life by Peleus, the father of Achilles. So, Phoenix owes everything to Peleus. Well, Peleus had a son named Achilles. How do you think Phoenix then feels for the son of the man who saved his life? Great affection. And so Phoenix is sort of like Uncle Phoenix. 
to Achilleus growing up. He is very close to him, and according to Homer, he actually teaches him. He teaches him how to sing, he teaches him how to fight, he teaches him how to speak. He is very... This is about as close a relationship as he can possibly have, except for his relationship to Patroclus. This is his closest relationship to a family member. In fact, you might even suspect that Achilleus, because of how much time he must have spent with Phoenix, has a closer relationship with him than even with his actual father. And so, uh, Phoenix has good reason to be here. He is very persuasive to Achilleus because Achilleus really cares about him. Uh, and he really cares about Achilleus. Alright, I'm going to move forward. Phoenix even directly says, oh yeah, I really love this. I really love this moment. I made you all that you are now and loved you out from my heart. I think that's a very persuasive, persuasive claim right there. If somebody is talking to you and trying to convince you to do something, and they lead with saying, I loved you out from all of my heart, and I helped to make you who you are, do they have your best interest in mind? Absolutely. If anybody does in this world, it would be someone who loved them, loved you with all their heart. And then he gives an example, and I always think this is a sweet example. When you imagine Achilleus, you probably imagine someone like that. Ooh, intimidating, scary, made of stone. But he was once a baby. And Phoenix knew him when he was a baby. Maybe you have an uncle or some friend of your father who knew you when you were young and makes fun of how you were when you were smaller because you used to do things. Things like maybe what Achilleus does here. Supposedly when Phoenix was younger and Achilleus was a baby, Phoenix would have Achilleus on his knee. You know what you do with babies. You kind of move your knee a little bit and jostle them up and down. They're having a great time. They're like, oh, hi, yeah, the world's moving. It's like an earthquake. It was a good time. Well, he would give Achilleus a little bit of wine. Remember, that's not really so bad back then because their wine was one part wine, 20 parts water. So it was mostly water. And probably they put some of that alcohol in there to sanitize the water because the water was unclean. They didn't have pipes like we do full of clean uh, fluoride-filled water. In any case, um, he would... Give that to Achilleus, but little babies, they don't really like the taste of wine. They don't really like to, the taste of alcohol. Maybe you've tasted it before, uh, and you probably were like, ugh, that's bitter and terrible, because it's not exactly something you like. When you're young, you like things that are sugary and sweet. Yum, 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 yum. But when you're older, you like things that aren't as sweet, like bitter espresso or black coffee, like Mr. Schmidt. And that's supposed to indicate a refined palate, because you go from what's natural to what's unnatural. In any case... You feed baby Achilleus the wine, he vomits all over Phoenix's leg. And so Phoenix is like, I know you. I've known you for a long time. I've taught you. I remember when you vomited on my tunic and it was very annoying. And I did not throw you against a wall, which is something that happens in Greek mythology, we know. In any case, he is on Achilleus' side. Has he proved that he is on Achilleus' side? Yes. Alright, he then talks, uh, I, I don't really need you to know this, but he gives a story about prayer and ruin, and I just want to tell you this, because this is an important thing to keep in mind, especially when you're angry. Supposedly, these are minor gods. Ruin is much faster than prayer, which means it's easy to ruin things. Prayer, though, supposedly limps, and is very slow, and only gets to places after things have been ruined. The idea being, be slow to act, be quick to think about things. It is easy to mess things up. It is very hard to put things back together. In any case, he tells a story. During the course of this story, I want you to think of Meliagros as Achilleus. I want you to think of the city called Caledon 
as uh, essentially, hmm, actually, it's hard to say. Meliagros is clearly Achilleus, but Caladon would be more like the Achaean camp. The situation is slightly different from the Trojan War. So, well, let me lay it out for you. There was a man named Meliagros. I want you to think of him as Achilleus in a slightly different situation. And there was a very famous creature in Greek mythology called the Caledonian boar, supposedly as big as an elephant. It could, with its tusks, de-shrub trees. Trees! And so it went about the countryside, destroying things. Well, this Meliagros, called Meliagor, usually, he goes out to fight this boar. And in the Homeric account, he actually kills this boar. Now, in the real mythological account, there's actually a very famous woman named Atalanta, who herself kills the boar. And then she's supposed to receive the boar skin, but then Meliagros' um, misogynist uncles say, a woman can't receive this boar's head, and so you harmed the boar, so if you don't accept the gifts, we're your family members, and she's a woman, therefore we should get the boar's head. Meliagros then supposedly killed them, and then here I'll add a, another weird part of Greek mythology. His mother had a branch that was told, she was told, and sort of like a, um, uh, which Disney movie is it? Sleeping Beauty, yes. There's a prophecy that whatever happens to this branch, he's told this, she's told this by a witch at the beginning of Meliagoras' life, will happen to your son. So she stores it in a very safe place. But when her son kills his uncles, her brothers, she takes that branch out and throws it in the fire, and Meliagoras falls over dead. That is the actual mythological account. So be nice to your moms, y'all. By the way, and don't be mean to your uncles. Homer gives a slightly simpler account. Meliagros kills this Caledonian boar. He then has its head. These people, called the Curates, then come to try and take it from him. For some reason, we are not told what, he becomes upset at his family and his kingdom and refuses to fight for the Aetolians. That's the name of the people who live in Caledon. They are the Aetolians. Probably because they came from a place called Aetolia. He refuses to fight. He refuses to fight. Even when he is approached by priests with offers of gifts, he does not accept these offers. In fact, he waits until the towers of his city are on fire to fight. He then helps to defeat the Curates. However, because he fought out of necessity to save his own life, rather than to save the lives of others hospitably, showing some compassion and honoring the Xenia, what does he not receive after he fights? The gifts he was offered. What is the point of Phoenix telling Achilleus this story? Accept the gifts right now, show some compassion, and you will be rewarded. And not only will you defeat the Trojans, but you will win more glory, you will be seen as more compassionate, and you will receive more gifts. And I care about you probably more than almost anybody in the world, so this is good advice. That is a very strong appeal, students. That is a very, very strong appeal. So, let's keep moving. This is a, I like this. Look at this image of Achilleus. There is a full-scale image. I just don't show it because he's sort of in the nude. He's totally in the nude. But look at this look on his face. I love it. It's called the Wrath of Achilles. See how he's all looking all googly-eyed? Is he seeing what's in front of him at all? 
Yes. No, he's blind with rage. There's an expression we have. Blind with rage, and he's just looking like this. And I love this, because when I was young, I used to look like this all the time. It would take nothing. Somebody just had to look at me the wrong way. Hours afterwards, I'd just be staring. What happened? What happened? I don't even know how I got through high school. In any case, this is how Achilles responds to his uncle, one of the closest people to his heart in all the world. You ought not to speak in favor of Agamemnon for fear that you do not turn hateful to me. He talks to Phoenix in the same way that Aphrodite, an Olympian goddess, talks to Helen, a girl who just misspoke to her. Uh, it's extraordinarily rude. Also, just to see who's feeling clever today, why is it that I have Achilles as half light blue, half red right now? Yes? Because he's technically not on the other side. Because he's... He's, he, his head's not right. He doesn't know which side he's on. That's right. Because even though he is technically an Achaean, that's light blue, he has asked Zeus to hurt the Achaeans, which seems like a very Trojan thing to ask, and that's why I add that red. Until, so until he gets his head straight, I'm actually going to keep him blue, but actually I might turn him red when he comes back, and I'll tell you why. It might be a different shade of red. In any case, he thinks you should hurt who hurts me, and then he says... Revealing a crack in his mental armor, why don't you stay the night, Phoenix? That's a softening of the blow a little bit. If he's just yelled at Phoenix that he will become hateful to him if he argues in favor of hateful people, and he says, stay the night, saying stay the night uh, is sort of like an olive branch. It's saying, okay, well, maybe we can think this over a little bit. You're going to see that Achilles' resolve seems to change, because he's going to say that he's going to do one thing, and then he is going to do another. Uh, and let me say what that is. At first he says, there is nothing that will bring him back to the fighting, except for if Hector burns down every ship in front of his, along the Achaean beach in their camp, and then gets to his. Which means, Achilles will only fight after all the other Achaeans have been killed. He will say something different at the end of this book. I want you to pay attention and find what. All right, Aias the Greater's speech. I just want to say two things about Aias the Greater. Whereas in the Greek tradition, Odysseus is seen as very clever, cunning, deceitful, tricky, smart. Aias is often seen sort of like Heracles is kind of dumb. Uh, sort of lead-minded. He makes a very simple argument. His argument is this. I don't really understand you, Achilles. In our culture, when you kill a person who is a family member of another person, that creates something called the blood price. Makes sense. You have to pay some money to a family that has lost a person who could, say, rustle up cattle because they therefore lose money because of this person, and so you have to uh, give them restitution for that. It, it's sort of uh, brutal, but it's also sort of civil on the one hand. You are literally putting a price on someone's head. You are putting a price on the life of somebody. Okay, well that is a convention at their time, and we have a convention like that too. If you, if you say murder somebody or commit manslaughter, you will have to spend some time either in jail, you might get a capital punishment like life in prison, or, or even being put to death. We also have a blood price, though. It is not uh, usually money that someone pays. Um, though in some very famous civil cases, that can be, <laughs> that can be the case. Uh, sadly speaking. In any case, I says, 
If, when somebody gets killed from your family, you can accept money in exchange for that and things are done, well, this seems like a much smaller situation. You got a concubine taken from you. The concubine is now being offered back to you. You're also being offered lots of other gifts. It's not like she was killed. It's not like she's being kept from you. I just don't get why you don't come back. And as much flack as Aias gets for not being as highly intelligent as Odysseus with his several different appeals, or even Phoenix with his very illustrative story of Meliagros, I think this makes perfect sense. It doesn't make sense. And actually, Achilles says that's true. He says, you're right. But my anger is unsatisfied. He literally says that he's out of his mind, that he's not thinking straight, that it is his anger which is driving his judgment, which makes us all very nervous and scared. Because when someone's angry, as you can tell from the color of his name being half blue and half red, whose side is he on? Is he even on his own side at this point, given what Meliagros argued for him? Take the gifts. Take the glory. Show some compassion. Do not be as death is, pitiless. Death is described as pitiless because what does death do to all mortal people? It takes them down to Hades. And so, Achilles should be like a human. And he says, First, I will not return until Hector threatens the ships of the Myrmidons. The Myrmidons are his men, who he leads. My ships with fire. And then Odysseus and Aias leave. Uh, Phoenix stays the night. Achilles will say, however, that there is another condition under which... Oh, oh, excuse me. That, I made a mistake. First he said he was leaving tomorrow. No matter what, he was going to be leaving tomorrow. Now he says he will stay until... Hector burns all the ships, and then we'll fight afterwards. So he first said he was going to leave, and now we know he's going to stay. So even though we didn't get the result we wanted from this embassy, we did get some result. He is still going to be at Troy, which is a good thing, because if he leaves, uh, at least so far as the Achaeans know, that's a very bad situation. Even though it is obviously the case that Zeus has agreed with Hera that Troy will fall, none of the Achaeans know this. And so they have to act as necessary. Ah, oh, yes. And the last thing I just want to mention, just because I think this is such a great note, is Patroclus and Achilles then go to bed, each with their respective concubines. Yes, it is the case that Achilles actually is going to bed with a different concubine named Diomede, not Diomedes, by the way. And so it is not like he doesn't have concubines. It is simply the principle of the matter that one of his concubines was taken away He's upset he's not coming back, even though he does have more. Even though he does have more. And so, it's funny, because that almost contradicts what he said to Agamemnon in book one, where he said, there's no store of concubines or gifts laying around. It's like, true, this is his concubine. But Briseis was not his only one. In any case, I just thought you should know that. Odysseus then reports back, we leave Achilles' tent, we go back to Agamemnon's tent, Odysseus reports failure. This is a major issue. Diomedes says, Ah, oh, this was a bad idea. You've only driven Achilles deeper into his pride because now he knows how much we want him. And so it's going to be much harder to get him. Sort of like dating logic, right? You let the person know who you like, that you really like them. All of a sudden, your value goes down. They don't want to date you. Uh, same sort of idea here. Book 10. All right. The Achaeans have failed to get Achilles to fight for them. 
It is now the middle of the night. There will be a battle the next day. The Trojans are right on the outside of the Achaean camp. The Achaeans believe they are going to die tomorrow. What do you do then? You've tried to get your best warrior back. Failed. It's the middle of the night. What could you possibly do to try and make tomorrow better? Well, Agamemnon can't figure that out himself. He's tearing his hair out. He gets up. Menelaus also can't sleep. But Menelaus, again, not because of his name, but because of his compassion for the men. He doesn't, he can't sleep at a time when the very next day when he wakes up, all his friends will die because of him. Because of his war for Helen. And so they both get up. And Menelaus and Agamemnon talk. And Agamemnon decides, we need to do a council session. We can't sleep all night. We've got to do something. We try to get Achilleus back. Tomorrow we're all going to die. At the very least, we're not sleeping tonight. We have to do whatever we can do. And then an idea will come up. And I just, I'm going to go quickly through this. You don't need to write this. Agamemnon then tells Menelaus to get Idomeneus and Aias the Greater. Agamemnon then goes to get Nestor. And Nestor will then go to get Odysseus, Diomedes, and Aias the Lesser. All these men get together. They're going to think up some sort of solution. The one thing I do want you to write is what Nestor does before they think up that solution. He goes to inspect the walls. This will be important later in Book 10. On the walls, he finds the sentries, and they are all alert. This shows you that the Achaeans take this situation very seriously. The leaders take it seriously. Also, the common men take it seriously. They're showing the right uh, structure and support. They're showing the right attitude. Everybody gets that this is an important, difficult situation. They're on the same page. It's like the final drive in a football game with two minutes left. You need a sense of urgency. They have that sense of urgency. You will not see that sense of urgency with the Trojans. You will see them make several mistakes. Uh, this book, that the Achaeans do not. And you will start to see the cracks in their armor, and you will start to see why it is that they will be defeated, and the Achaeans will not be defeated. The night meeting begins. Now, the first thing I want you to observe is this. Nestor is the one who presents this situation and asks which man is daring enough, which man is courageous enough, which man loves honor so much that he will risk his skin to go out into the night, defenseless essentially, to spy on the Trojans, to observe their positions, to see what their plans are for tomorrow, so that if anything can be done, perhaps the Achaeans will do that something that will prevent them from death the next day. And then he says, we will give heaven's high glory to a person and a gift, a black lamb. And apparently a black lamb, like a black sheep, is sort of rarer than a white one. And so this is a nice gift to offer as well. Well, who is it that volunteers? It's the same person who's been trying to come up and differentiate himself from his very famous father ever since book five. It's Diomedes. Diomedes wants to go out and make his mark. And yet, and yet he, he does show that he's a little bit nervous. He, he also makes the comment, well, you know, the thing is, uh, two pairs of eyes are better than one pair of eyes because one pair can look forward and the other pair can look backwards. It's very circumspect. Uh, and so he says, it would be really nice to have someone else go out with me, volunteering a second person, essentially. Well, several people volunteer, the Iontes, Marianes, Menelaus, uh, Odysseus, and Antilochus. And uh, actually, Agamemnon says, 
don't choose anybody just based on how royal they are. Essentially suggesting, don't choose Menelaus, please. I don't want him to die. Diomedes, of all these men, chooses Odysseus. Something interesting for you is in Canto 26 of the Inferno next year, we will see uh, in the Inferno Odysseus and Diomedes in the same flame. Odysseus and Diomedes go out into the night. Now, they're very intelligent. I don't need you necessarily to write all these parts. I do need you to write what's in purple there. They put on leather caps. This is important. They put on leather rather than metal because what will metal do that could give them away while they're trying to slink through the night unobserved? Shine. Yes, the moon or stalk. Usually the moon or some sort of flame can shine off the metal. This is very important because when we read the Aeneid, nearer the end of the year, we will see it is precisely because a spy who goes out into the night during a war puts on a metal helmet that gives his position away. He will be shown as unintelligent, whereas Diomedes and Odysseus, they make the right moves. They pay attention to the details. Also, leather makes less noise than metal. And so, less glare, less heavy, less noise, very smart. You have to dress appropriately to the endeavor. That's sort of like when you think of a cat burglar, what color are they wearing? They go out at night. They want to blend in. They're wearing all what? Black. And they usually even have a black hat on as well, sometimes even over their face. Very good. They want to be disguised. In any case, Odysseus had just mentioned, you don't need to know this, that his cap was stolen by his grandfather, Autolycus, just letting you know that Odysseus' family is known for being good at going out into the night and taking things that are not theirs. He will show his own prowess here. Odysseus comes from Thebes. In fact, the god of Thebes, Hermes, is his great-great-grandfather. Um, that's Autolycus' father. And Autolycus' name even means wolf self. And so he's known to be sort of, uh, well, like a wolf. He'll take what he wants from people. Now, something Odysseus and Diomedes do before they go out is they say a little prayer to Athena. Athena then sends a great heron over them. I don't know how they see it, but a heron is a wading bird, so it's a big, giant bird. And so they see this bird, and they're like, good, good. That means Athena's on our side. That's helpful. It means that they are preparing wisely for this endeavor. They are as safe as they can be, but it is certainly up to them to make it happen. I just want you to keep in mind just how utterly dangerous this situation is for them. If they are caught, they will be tortured, they will be killed. They are very much aware of this. Okay, Hector and the Trojans hold their own counsel. And I want you to start paying attention to all the little mistakes that the Trojans make. Now that apparently they, now that they're camping right outside of the Achaean walls, want to know a little bit more about the Achaean camp. So even though they're not nervous, they too want a strategic advantage over the Achaeans. So Hector calls a council himself. You can see the parallels here. And he says, who would take upon him this work and bring it to fulfillment for a huge price? The reward will be one that will suffice him. The thing is, rather than asking who's brave enough, who has courage enough to go out and the night, and then offering a gift. He says, who wants some gifts? And is therefore willing to go out at night. You find a different sort of person who wants glory versus the sort of person who wants gifts, or geros. Hmm. In any case, that's 
his first mistake. He then offers a chariot and two fine horses, and as we know, he has nice chariots and very fine horses. And who volunteers? Somebody whose name I think you will remember until the, your last breath. His name is Dolon, son of Eumenes. Few things that we learn about him in the first few lines we see. He is evil-looking. He is literally described as evil-looking. Whereas uh, Thersites is described as the ugliest of can, Dolon is described as looking evil. I don't know exactly what that means. I mean, I can uh, sort of imagine Scar from the Lion King or like uh, Jafar from Aladdin. They look pretty evil. But uh, I think it means that he's just got a really ugly face. Which, in the ancient Greek uh, idea, the uglier you were, the more evil you were. In fact, their word for, uh, they have a word for ugly called ice gross, but they have a word for evil which also means bad and can also mean poorly formed, which is kakos. Which is why when you hear nasty sounds, they're called a cacophony. In any case, he's also described as having five sisters and no brothers. The reason why I think is fairly obvious. He is described as not being particularly manly. Uh, he is uh, slightly feminine in this way. He wants gifts. He doesn't exactly fight for courage. And then he shows that he is, uh, besides his looks and his family constitution, he shows that his head's not quite screwed on straight because he makes a request of Hector. Besides what he has been offered by Hector, a chariot and two horses, which would be a fine, fine gift or reward for him, he asks for something very particular which you must know. He asks for Achilleus' horses if he completes this task. I, I, I really just don't even know how to convey to you how absurd that request is. A, is Achilleus dead? No. B, who is going to kill Achilleus? Not him. C, even if Achilleus were killed, who would get his horses? Probably the person who killed him, probably Hector, if anybody were going to be it. This man shows that he's delusional. There's no way that he's going to kill Achilleus, or that anybody's going to kill Achilleus. And there's no way that he deserves these horses. And yet, Hector, hearing this crazy request, says, yeah, that sounds fair, that sounds reasonable. Finally, you go out into the Trojan night. Uh, mistake after mistake after mistake. Offering gifts rather than honor. Choosing Dolon, even though he is so clearly uh, unworthy. And the last mistake is, how many men does he send out into the Trojan plain? Only one. Well, if it's one on two, who do you think is going to win at night? The numbers will win. It is so often a numbers game. And as you've seen with all these images, Dolon actually historically dresses as, or at least uh, according to Euripides' The Rasos, so that's a play from the Athenian drama uh, in the 5th century, uh, three centuries after this, two, uh, 250 years after this or so. Uh, Dolon goes out and pretends to be a wolf, so he's actually on all fours out there uh, when he gets caught. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think we have time for more today. We'll have to end there.